May God, the Holy Spirit, fill you with the sort of faith that simply falls at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, at the foot of our Savior, and cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But then also, the faith that hears those words of our text spoken also then to you. I have put away your sins. You will not die. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, I'm loath in the extreme to bring this up in this setting for fear of degrading the setting, but sin is best met head on and uncompromisingly, unambiguously. Sin requires confrontation. So with that, let me ask you a question, which is the naughty finger. And the answer is, of course, there isn't one. God made us with no such thing. In fact, he, on the contrary, attached these amazing instruments to the ends of our arms, instruments that are so complex and yet strong. They have the dexterity to play musical instruments and yet strength to grab and hold. As with the hymn, we're supposed to be of a mind of take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. And yet, with, as with everything else that, that God has created perfectly, when man touches it, when man comes in contact with it, he sullies it, he degrades it. We do that. To the extent here that we've given it preeminence almost in our degradation, if somebody says they gave him the finger, you know which one they're talking about. But that sort of thing is supposed to have no place in the conversation, the actions, the lives, the minds of God's children. And yet, as Christian sinners, we have to admit that there is actually no level of degradation to which we cannot submit ourselves, to which we cannot sink. No amount of disrespect and rebellion, even toward our God, of which we are incapable. The fact is, you and I are not only tempted to show such disrespect and loathing toward our neighbors, we're also tempted to show that disrespect toward our God. The problem here goes deeper than that even. Not only do we show that disrespect, but we fail to recognize it. We fail to confront it. And on the contrary, we learn to become comfortable with sin. Again, grading ourselves on the curve of society. It's so common. Therefore, somehow now it's acceptable for us to adopt the world's method of action, their methods of expression, their thoughts their ideas. And then we consider ourselves somehow better. Oh sure, we're not perfect people, but we're not capable of that level of disrespect and sin. We're not that bad. 
Honesty dictates otherwise, doesn't it? In and of ourselves, we're just as bad. Honesty forces us to acknowledge that we are not only capable of such things, we've been guilty of them. And we, were all, we are always at risk. Our text for this morning will make that clear to us. If we listen, if we honestly apply these words to ourselves as they were intended, these words will condemn us. By these words, we will be instructed. And then by the grace of God, by these words, we will be comforted and reassured. Our text for this morning is found in the book of 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, beginning with the 26th verse. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare to prepare for the guest who had come to, come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add as much to you, add to you as much and more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is God's word, perfect in every conceivable way. God grants you, therefore, trust or the grace to trust these words in every way, to trust that they are God's words. So also, in preparation, we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. I would imagine that most of you here this morning 
are familiar with this account, the account of David and Bathsheba. Interestingly enough, however, we tend to dwell on a side aspect rather than the main message of this text. Uh, the discussion centers usually around whether or not David fell from grace, whether or not he lost his faith during this period of time. And that's a, an unfortunate circumstance for, for a variety of reasons. It's a fruitless endeavor. First of all, because Scripture doesn't answer the question for us. So we're just talking, giving opinions. Second, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the main point of this text, the main message of why God caused this to be recorded and delivered to us. And third, because the idea that David fell for a time from grace, from faith, that he lost his faith for a time, is unfortunately then extrapolated onto every Christian who sins willfully. In other words, if we know something is a sin and we do it anyway, then many believe nothing like a lottery or a maybe sort of thing, even for Christians. In other words, now I'm in grace, oop, I just sinned, now I'm out of grace, and boy, I hope I don't die during one of those periods where I've lost my faith for a time. None of this is what our God intended here. And yet, don't misunderstand, sin is obviously, obviously, critically important for God's children because sin deteriorates faith by which we're saved. The strongest steel can't stand up to acid. The human body can't tolerate cancer. And that's what sin does to saving faith, by which we alone are saved. But this notion that we fall from Faith, we lose our faith, we fall from grace every time we sin willfully is terrifying because sinning willfully means you know something is a sin and you do it anyway. Isn't that most of our sin? Isn't it the vast majority? Do you say a bad word and then suddenly realize, huh, that was a bad word? Of course we know things are sin. And we sin in weakness. As Paul said, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that's what I do. It's a willful sin. So we have to have that balance. We don't want to downplay the danger of sin, but we also want to understand the Christian faith as it is, God's promise of salvation through faith alone in Him. So what we should learn from our text then, first of all, is the true nature of what David had fallen into. What happened to David? His actions, whether he realized it at the time or not, represented disrespect of his God. It's hard for us, isn't it, sometimes, to recognize that in our own sin. To recognize that every sin is ultimately a disrespecting, a thumbing our nose at God. But that's what sin is. Sin is breaking God's laws. David committed adultery. 
David committed murder. David committed theft. He obviously had also along the way committed the sin of coveting. All of those things are against God. Murder is deciding for yourself, taking from God, and deciding when you're going to end a human life at whatever stage that life happens to be. Theft is rejecting God's distributions of the things of this world and deciding that what God gave to someone else, you should have. Adultery is theft of another person's spouse. The spouse that God gave to someone else. All sin is like that. A demonstration of rebellion and disrespect toward God. Now, is that really true or is that just human opinion? Are we just forcing our own ideas onto God's word? Our text makes clear that it is exactly how God sees things. David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against Uriah, his trusted friend. David had sinned against his own people because what he did had become known and it was an offense to them. That is, it weakened their faith. It encouraged them to sin. And yet, what do we read in our text? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the first thing that we need to grasp come to terms with this morning from this text. Every sin that we commit is a sin against our God. What can we expect, what can you expect from your God when you sin? You can expect exactly what David received. The finger of God pointed at you in accusation. It's an important distinction, isn't it? You see how our minds have been sullied in all of this? The finger of God? It's that finger that he points at us with his law. It's that condemnation of God. As he sent Nathan to David, and Nathan, acting as God's spokesman, pointed his finger at David and said those words that must have fallen like a hammer on David's heart. You are the man. Recognize, however, that this is an act of love from a merciful God. It is our God supplying exactly what we need. If he didn't care about David, he never would have sent Nathan. Why would he? He would have let David drift off into whatever mess he wanted to create and be lost eternally. Sending Nathan was an act of pure compassion from a merciful God. And again, the most common debate here is whether or not David had fallen from faith. Again, thanks be to God, we don't have to even answer that question because our text leaves us with no doubt, as does the rest of God's word, the state that David found himself in after the visit from Nathan the prophet. Repentance, forgiveness, life. So this is not only 
a lesson that we need to learn here. It's not just an account. And you remember, with Scripture, we're never supposed to be detached observers. We're participants in every reading, every study of God's Word. We're there. And we need to find ourselves there in every text. As God said, I didn't record this just for your entertainment. All these things were recorded, preserved, delivered to you for your instruction, for your growth. So where do you find yourself in this text? It's interesting because we'd like to find ourselves where we aren't. and really don't want to find ourselves where we are. So go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where do you see yourself in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Oh, we'd like to see ourselves as, as that noble person that helped that poor wretch in need. We certainly aren't any of the religious leaders that pass by on the other side. We're, we, we try to be, we want to be the Good Samaritan. No, you're that beaten, bloody, helpless person lying by the side of the road that can't help himself. That's us. That's where we find ourselves there. The account of the woman caught in adultery that the men of the city dragged before Jesus and wanted Jesus to pronounce a death sentence on her. So the law of Moses says, what do you say? Trying to alienate him from one section or the other of the people. Where do you find yourself there? Again, we're the person caught in sin. We're the individual that has no defense and casts ourselves instead on the mercy of our Savior. So where do you find yourself here? In this text, you're David, aren't you? Caught up in sin. We need a Nathan in our lives. Many of them, don't we? Who's your Nathan? Who is it that God sends to you in love to point out your sin? You remember, sin requires confrontation. Who does God send in your life that points at you and says, you are the man. You are the guilty person. Sometimes it's your spouse, a friend, pastor. Sometimes it's not a who, but a what. God's word. And you read in that word, thus says the Lord, thou shalt not. And that's your Nathan pointing right at you, saying, but you did. Or you shall do this, and you did not. Your God loves you too much to do otherwise than to send his Nathan into your life in whatever form. If he didn't love you, he would just leave you alone. And that conviction that that Nathan brings into our lives is absolutely essential, isn't it? Because we're very good at several bad things. We're very good at becoming comfortable with sin. We're very good at becoming rational with sin. In other words, we rationalize it away. We're very good at, at adopting the world where we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world, and yet we're not that somehow. Imagine how many rationalizations King David could have come up with. King David? I'm a king. That's what kings do. 
well, uh, nobody knows the pressure I'm under on a daily basis. I'm the king. I am the king, and that's not nearly as bad as what other kings do. Can you imagine? And still, Nathan, you're the man. Obviously, sinful pride is at work here. Man finds himself in direct conflict with God's word and will, and yet man finds a way to convince himself that he is entitled or justified in doing the very things that his God says, don't do that. God sent Nathan to David, and he sent him in a most clever way. He sent him in a way, he told him a story that, that induced David into condemning himself. And that's the other lesson we need to learn here, isn't it? How silly. Again, David had committed murder, adultery, he coveted, and he'd stolen, among others. I'm sure he lied along the way multiple times. And yet to confront that sin... God sent Nathan with a story about, you heard the account, a rich man, a poor man, one lamb for the poor man, multiple flocks, and he stole the one poor man's lamb. And what was David's reaction? As the Lord lives, that's their taking an oath, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Interesting, isn't it? David was able to live in denial of his own terrible sins, but immediately presumed to pronounce a death sentence on someone who stole a lamb. We're good at that. Again, we're not spectators. We're participants. And we are so good at blocking out all of our faults, all of our sins, and focusing on those of someone else. And that's what this text does. It turns our world around. And God points that finger of the law at us and says, you are the man, not someone else. You don't get to justify yourself because others are doing it. You sin. Expect this then from your God. Learn that when you sin, God will point in some way, because he loves you, that finger of accusation at you. But then guess what he does? He points then away from you to his son. He points that finger of accusation at his son Jesus, because every sin that you committed, he placed on his son, and his son paid for it. In repentance, we fall again in abject humility at our Savior's feet, and we plead, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, not a sinner, not one among many, the sinner. God says to us, Get up. Your faith has saved you. I punished my son. I pointed that finger of condemnation at Jesus. 
And he carried the sum total of your sins and everyone else's sins to that cross. He paid for them there. There is no pending charge on any sin anyone here has committed. It's been paid in full. It's gone. Our God, as only our God could do, says, I remember them no more. They can't be used against you, ever. Gone. Forgiven. For Jesus' sake. That's the whole point, isn't it? Of sending Nathan. That's the whole point of sending Nathans into our lives. Of pointing that finger of accusation of the law at us, not so that we might die, but so that we might live. You heard this outlined. You've heard it multiple times in 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's eternal destruction in hell. It's also the world's answer to sin. Just pretend it doesn't exist. Pretend you don't have it. Pretend you're not guilty of it. They rot on the inside because they know it's not true. Something inside that conscience that God wired into their hearts, clouded because of sin, but it's been there since creation, that conscience continues to disturb. And here's a, here's a clue. The louder and the more violent somebody rebels against God's judgment, the more they demonstrate they're condemned by it still. God does this because he loves us. Because the other half of 1 John 1, verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, that's saying that scenario B where we repent, we confess, God has obligated himself to forgive that sin. He can't do otherwise. He can't lie. He doesn't change. That sin is gone. God, through Nathan, restored to David the joy of salvation that was his. What a tremendous comfort to know that that's exactly the same goal that God has for every single one of us, every single one of you. When he brings that condemnation into your life, thank him for it. Repent. But then also hear those words of comfort meant for you. The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Amen. Please rise.